This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And today we are starting off really early by letting you know what the, uh, the focus of the show is going to be. We're going to be talking about covers and blurbs, but that bleeds into our chit-chat. So yeah, Taylor, we're doing it backwards. <laughs> we're, yeah. We're, so the chit-chat actually has to do with covers and blurbs, uh, more so than you might think. And then we will actually get into the discussion of covers and blurbs. And maybe it'll all just be one long thing. Who knows? So, Taylor, tell us why you are interested in covers and blurbs right now. Well... Do I tell the short version of the story or the long version of the story? No, no, last, no. I like yeah, two weeks. Two weeks ago, we had <laughs> we had that chit chat that went the whole show. So let's go with the short version. Okay, so um, long time ago, way back when we uh, when the vessel was published, which is uh, sort of three point five in the Vanessa Michael Monroe series. It's a novella, so they they never put it out in uh, hardback or any paper version. It was done in ebook in uh, digital audio only. And they and digital, is your publisher. The publisher, yes. It was not my decision, but I was okay with it, with that decision, because um, unlike all my other books where the publisher came and bought the rights, the publishing rights, and I had no control over what happened with them, this was sort of a very last minute, spur of the moment thing. It was not under contract. It was just something that I wrote because uh, fans had wanted to know there was this there's a gap in the third book between uh the very very end and right before that it's like a five month gap and there just wasn't the space to put that in the story and um i got pressured people really want to know what happened what what happened so that's what this novella is is it's filling in the gaps and so when the publisher agreed to take it it wasn't they didn't they never paid me anything for it. It was just a profit split, like, okay, whatever. Um, and But then they billed me like 50% of the audio production and everything. So it's, it's it was just a wash, you know? Um, but I retained all the rights. Like it was a, it was a temp, it was a licensing deal. It was a two year exclusive where they could do it. They could have it exclusively for two years. And then after that, I could do whatever I wanted with it. So I never lost the right to print it myself. And so it always had this idea that I was going to eventually put into print, but, um, you know, life kind of went upside down and I, there's always been other priorities, both, uh, with mentally and with time and with money. Um, and I just never got around to it, but, um, with Patreon, which is, um, it's like a patronage. It's a site where those who love my work beyond just the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a, a, a bite to eat. And they really want the next book that I'm working on um, where they can support me because of the patronage that I've received. Um, I've been able to step off the hamster wheel a bit, 
kind of clear my head and and refocus. And it's always been a goal on Patreon that eventually when we got to a certain funding level, I could get this book in print. And uh, we hit that funding level. It was probably temporary, but um, because of uh, somebody who was very generous, but there's a time limit on how long they can be that generous. Um, So I was like, okay, this is the year. I'm going to do it this year. And to get it put into print, I mean, there's there's a, a lot that goes into it, but it also involved covers because um, when the original was done, it was only done for ebook and digital audio, so there was only that front-facing cover. And um, you know, when you put something into a book, it, it needs the full wrap. And on top of that, the, my publisher owned the right to the the graphics, the image. And it's been so long now since I've had anything to do with them, like, because my more recent books have been with a different publisher. Um, The people who were involved in that licensing deal are no longer there. And so to even get to the stage where we could have the discussion about, hey, can I use the same artwork for this cover? It would mean getting my agent involved, who would then have to get the editors involved who then have to go to the editing department, who then have to go to the legal department, who then have to who, it just it was like, no, nah, it's just easier to redo the cover myself. <laughs> well, not myself, myself, but, you know, get somebody to redo the cover um, for this. So that was part of the process. So covers are very fresh in my mind. And also blurbs are very fresh in my mind because generally books are going to have blurbs on the back cover. And this is an older book. So what do I do there? And so, yeah, it's uh, it's related. The chit chat is the the um, the vessel has been done in for in hardback, and I just um, just received the sample copies of it. To I did a, a very small test print run to see what they would look like to make sure there weren't any mistakes or anything. And so, um, hopefully soon, probably for those who are listening and for the wider audience uh, towards the end of the year. I know going into the next year, um, it'll be available, but they will not be available. Like you can't buy them on Amazon. Like the, I, I specifically went out of my way to make sure that the, they're special. They're only for fans, for people who love and love my work and want to support it. So to get a copy, you have to go directly to me to get it. But, um, I'm very excited to, to hold these actual, hold a physical copy of it in my hand. It's like, five years has been maybe (laughs) in the making to finally make this happen. So yeah, that's the chit chat is, Hey, this is actually for real happening. And then it connects to the subject of today with, you know, the subject of covers and blurbs. So covers and blurbs, you, you mentioned, well, just overall, in your opinion, how important are covers and blurbs to the, um, overall success of uh, a book. Oh, but those are two completely separate things. So um, let's talk covers first, right? Okay. Uh, Covers, I think, are very important to the overall success of a book just because in today's shopping environment, so many people, uh, they, they get their books online, right? And they're just scrolling, scrolling through little uh, you know, image after image after image. A cover will basically tell someone in an, if it's done well, tell someone in an instant what kind what they're getting themselves into. Like the 
the difference in what you would see for a romance cover versus a thriller are, are night and day. Uh, Westerns, typically, you know, you, you can look at a cover and you can almost tell the genre. And you can, I think, you can almost tell the quality of the story as well. Um, but that's part of the package. Like, you're, you're trying to catch the eye with it. And I know, for example, for me, and, and, and I've heard this from others, too, with some of my, my work, like um, the when the when Liar's Paradox came out and it had that sort of rusty, bloody razor blade on the front, there were people who were put off by it who only picked it up and read it because they, they trusted me and they knew my name. But for somebody who didn't know, they might think it was a horror story, right? So, but I do don't have a lot of say so in what happens to the covers that are produced by the publisher. And I've learned that um, sometimes by asking for something different, uh, that doesn't mean you're going to get something better. <laughs> so if it's possible, <laughs> then you just go, OK, and you pick your battles of, of things that you don't like and that you want changed. But um, so so covers really do have a lot when they say you don't judge a book by a cup by its cover. That didn't come from nowhere because people do judge book by its cover. So in that sense, covers are very important. But if a book has a smashing cover and what's between the covers is not all that great, well, the cover is not going to make it any better. But it not a good cover is not going to sell a bad story. But a bad cover probably, I believe, could hurt a good story. Okay, so let me let me jump in there as well. I mean, one of the things you said, um, you said, and I, I, I'm not going to be able to get the quote right, but you said a cover in some instances can show you the quality of the story. What, what do you mean by that? Well, this, this could be very prejudicial and, and there might be people, I don't know, there are going to be people who disagree with me because there's, you can never find and you can't say anything that everybody in the world is going to agree with. But um, I've, I have found that generally um, the the more time that's invested in putting a cover together, like when you have an art department, for example, that's all they do is covers, they're still going to make some bad covers. But you're going to there's going to be a certain way that the covers are look that, that feels like they were done by somebody who really knows what they're doing, um, that gives you a sense that the whole rest of the package also is done well, that doesn't always hold true. But the, if there are times where some people might um, hire a graphic designer individually to design a cover who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with book covers specifically. And so in the case like that, the... the um, it's just going to there's going to be something about it that's very hard to pin down. But the brain's going to pick it up that this is different. And oftentimes people who aren't able to find someone who really knows what they're doing and far as far as uh, the outside of it, it tends that they might not also know what they're doing on the inside of it. So that's where I was coming from with that. So when you have a really well put together cover the the automatic assumption when you see it is the inside is going to be very well put together too. It doesn't always work that way. That's just the way the brain works in its assumptions. Okay. Now I'm curious because I have not seen the new cover 
for the vessel. Is, is it a riff on the original cover? It is a riff on the original cover. Um, so the the goal with doing this new cover was twofold. One was to stay as close to the original idea, the original concept as possible without violating copyright. So the general idea, but with enough changes and uh, differences that you can't say, oh yeah, this is you know directly copied. The second was to keep it within the overall look and feel of the uh, the covers as a whole, which is a little tricky because there's two versions of the covers. Um, the publisher originally, it, it took them three books to figure out the sort of look and feel branding of the series. So the original hardback is one cover for both the informationist and the innocent for the first two books. Then the original paperback, uh, the trade paperback was a different cover. And when they finally finished, figured out the branding of it, they went back and redid for the third time the first two covers. So that both of the first two books have three different covers uh, in English, in American English, you know, that doesn't count all the other ones. So, um, I just have to assume that most people who would want a hardback of the vessel also have hardback of the informationist and the innocent, which is going to be completely different than the rest of the series. So I wanted a cover that would fit both ways to the best of ability. And so that was the goal. And I, I think we got pretty close with it. I'm really happy with it. Okay. Well, that's, that's challenging. <clears throat> so to, to move on to blurbs now, so for you, the blurb is just back cover material, for a book that's not going to be sitting on shelves in bookstores, it's back cover material for a book that will be sitting on the bookshelves of people who love your work. So yes. it's not really a sales tool. Correct. Um, for me, with this particular edition, I wanted the book to feel as close to one that you would have gotten from the original publisher mm -hmm. and to, so to have a back cover without any blurbs, it would feel naked because they're so standard in the industry. But there's also the possibility that, you know, someone will gift copies to others or that copies that they either they had would ended up in a garage sale box or something. I mean, I've seen, autographed copies of my books and half price books that were personalized. So obviously not everyone treasures them, um, <clears throat> which is fine, but you know, you just don't know. So you don't know where it's going to end up. And so for those readers who might happen upon it by chance, you want something there that kind of gives them an idea of what they're getting into. So, yeah. Okay. So for, for people who are traditionally published, they would typically not be involved in the cover discussion um, or th there wouldn't be typically like a review process and like, hey, what do you think about this kind of a thing? Well, it they do. Just... Okay. They do ask your opinion, mm -hmm. but it's almost more like a courtesy. Like what they really want to hear you say is, oh, my God, yes, I love it exactly as it is which is exactly what I want to hear when I submit my manuscripts. <laughs> it never happens. <laughs> so, you know, by the time they show the cover to the author, it has been through multiple rounds of discussion. So that might not have been the first 
iteration, like the, the the artist might have submitted five or six different ideas, right? And then they're like, okay, go with this one. And then they would have done multiple iterations of that. So by the t- and then it would have gone through the editorial department. It would have gone to sales. It would have gone to marketing. Everybody would have signed off on it saying, yeah, we love it. This is what we want. And then they send it to the author. And when the author goes, no, well, that's not like, okay, we'll just go ask the graphic designer to redo it. It's like a big deal, right? So that's why I say you kind of have to pick your battles when you, when the, when the cover comes to you for your opinion, even if you hate, I mean, if you really hate it, you, you can throw a fit and, and they want you to be happy. It's not like they don't care what you think. It's just, you're way down the list of their priorities for getting this thing done. So there have been very few covers that have come my way that I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I love it exactly the way that it is. Um, and so there's always something that I'm like, oh, well, can we change this or can we change that? And if it's small stuff, they'll usually work with me on it. Um, there, the one time that I was like, I, I just I hate this. They the ideas that they threw back at me were so um opposite what I had been suggesting that I was like, almost felt like it was an act of malicious compliance. Like, oh, she thinks she doesn't like this. Let's show her what she really, really doesn't like. And then she'll be really happy to get this cover. So I've just learned, you know, pick your battles. If it's not horrible, just just run with it. Um, But all of which to say, you do get some input, you do get some say so. But depending on your relationship with the publisher, it could be very much just a courtesy. Like there, there was one time where there was a cover that went out and I said, I hate this. And they were like, yeah, well, we like it and we're just going to run with it. So that can happen. Um, so it just really depends on a lot of circumstances, but you do not have any uh Design, depending on who you are and how who you're working with, like maybe some authors do. Uh, I did not get a lot of opportunity to input what direction I wanted the covers to go, which is just as well because I'm not a designer and I don't think that I could do it any better. So, but some authors are very creative in that way, and they probably would have appreciated the opportunity. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Um, in my experience, the authors who get too involved in the cover design process wind up with inferior covers because they wrote the story and there are all of these elements that they want the cover to get across as opposed to, hey, this is a kick-ass thriller, which right. is what and you really want in your case. Yes, and that's what happened with uh, with Liar's Paradox. Like, There's absolutely nothing in that book that relates to razors or razor blades or rusted razor blades or bloody razor. <laughs> there's just nothing in the book that has anything to do with that. But they wanted a cover that said uh, edge of the knife thriller or, mm-hmm. you know, cutting edge. And that's, they, they took that very literally, and that's the direction that they went with. And I, and I can't argue that. It does have that that element to it. And so when when they the designers are going at it, they're like, what is going to give us the atmosphere of this story? And when someone who's not a designer like me gets involved, it gets kind of meddly, right? So that's why mm-hmm. I really do try and stay hands off with that type of stuff. What about the font? Because that this is something that people don't think about. You don't really see that what you've chosen is wrong until you see it on the cover. 
sometimes. And it's like, well, you know, any, it, I just need the words to be there and it, it'll be fine. That's typically, that's not the case. And you have to pick the right font for the right genre. And that blends well with the cover. Did you give any thought to that or what, did you just rely on your designer for all of that? I'm, I'm laughing on the inside. Um, I am so fanatical about the fonts. <laughs> like, okay. I right. don't know what it is, but it's, it's a very OCD thing with my brain that, and it happens to me when I'm writing too. Um, like if I see too much white space on the page as I'm writing or sentences don't, and the, the paragraphs end with just like one word on the final sentence. Um, it, so that the line is mostly blank, it makes me crazy. I will actually restructure and rewrite stuff to balance out the the, the feel of the page, which is stupid because it's not going to look that way in the book. And then when you actually get the final version, then it's even it's like wow. So, um, but but I can't help it. It's like you know this OCD thing, and so it's the same thing with fonts. Like the when the the covers. I will tell them, I was like, I'm super picky about the weight and the feel of these letters. Those ones are too skinny. These ones are too fat. You know, I want this font, but I want it to feel this way and look this way. And with this particular cover, the one that, that we just did, there were several go arounds where I was like, nope, the, there's not the right balance between the author's name and the, uh, the title. It, the, the fonts have a different weight and feel to them. I know it's the same font, but there's some kind of skewing or something going on. I don't know the right language. I can just tell you it doesn't feel right. And so for me, it's not look, it's not a look. It's like, am I having this, this sense of claustrophobia or panic in my chest? And when it's gone, then I know it's right. And I feel that way much more strongly about fonts than I do the, the graphics or the image that are with them. It's very difficult. It's bizarre. My brain's broke. It's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. But yes, fonts matter so much to me. And and it's uh, for people out there that that might be indie authors, where you're you're contracting for the production of your own covers. There is not necessary. It, it isn't necessary that the person who is the great artist for your cover is also a person who's really great with fonts. There are some people who are just terrible with with fonts but they're really good with the artistic part of the cover. And you can get two different people to do these things if you're not happy. We actually have, we have one guy who is a cover designer for us, but he's, he's a font genius. So when other cover designers are having trouble getting the fonts right, we just say, ah, just give us the art. We'll give it to this other guy and he'll fix That's it. That's interesting. And in you know, like an hour, he sends you the perfect font for that book and series. And it's like, how do you do that? It's, it's incredible. Um, but not also, everybody has those two skills together. Some people do, but not everyone does. And I think, um, also maybe people don't realize how much it matters, the font that you use on the inside of a book and not just the fonts, but the, this, and I don't know all the right, I've been taught <laughs> the, the words, but I don't actually know, you know, I haven't remembered them, but the spacing between the lines, the spacing mm -hmm. between the letters, how much space there is between the lines and the margins. Right. And I've, I've, I've seen some books. I, I have quite a few that have been, you know, given to me, um, by those who've, uh, published their own work. And I don't know if they realize that those inner elements 
they they scream like they scream quality or not quality and it takes a measure of skill and understanding how things are supposed to look for you to hit it right and you can i mean you can do it all on your own you can put out a book that looks exactly like it was you know done by a big expensive press or whatever but it's 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 about so many little details is about the the layout of the page right so i've seen some books that have been done independently where there's like a big gap between both paragraphs like between paragraphs like you would if you were in a word document and you didn't indent the first line you just double carriaged it and you know you had these big blocks i've seen books laid out like this and i'm thinking why why did you go to all the trouble of printing it yourself and not take care that this this looks like something that was laid out by a profession by a professional because it's learnable like even for me, it's learnable. So if I can learn, anybody can learn it. Well, so, and it's viable, too. I mean, there are tools that you could use that will do this for you. Amazon provides tools, for example, that, that will do it. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a Mac tool called Vellum. There's, there's Scrivener. There are things that you can use. And, and there are some people who just use a Word document, and they're really good at it. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the basis for their book. And there are some people who don't give it a thought. And you see the same thing with, with some covers. I've, I've read some books that I really enjoyed where the cover is just so ghastly bad that um, they, they have no hope of, of selling a significant number of copies of the book. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, every book that a big publisher puts out is going to nail it. Um, and that doesn't get even into the story, right? Like this is just the, the visual elements. Um, but the difference is that they have departments where that's all that they do, right? So they, that's, that's it. That's all they do. So they have this level of experience with it, that it, it just comes out looking and feeling a certain way. And so you can, Get even if you're not the greatest writer, if your story is good and the packaging that it's in is good, it's not going to it's going to feel better than it is. Like, um, what's the there's so there's this term called social proof, right? Which is um something that our brains use to tell us whether a thing has value or not. So like if if so, if there's an item on that's that's for sale and everybody wants it then you your brain automatically assumes that it must have value or it must be worth something because you can't buy it because it's constantly off the shelves that's social proof or if somebody has um a, a title like you know a professor right or they the CEO of a company that that's a, a status symbol that's social proof that, that what that person has to say might be more valuable than somebody who doesn't have it. And when you give a book an appealing package in terms of its cover and the blurbs and the way that it's laid out on the inside, that is a form of social proof that that tells the brain that, hey, this might actually be really good. And the thing about um the way that we perceive value is, and, and again, this gets into the psychology of things, but as a human being, if you get something for free or you've been told that it is not very good, 
then you, as you experience this thing, this thing, your tendency is to uh, have your experience affected by what you believed about it before you went into it. It doesn't happen always. Like you'll get books that people will read. They've been told up and down that are just amazing. And then they read them and they trash them. So, or vice versa, or movies that just get panned by the critics, but that the audience's love, right? So it's not like it's an inviolable rule, but it's it's enough of a, a constant that if if you pick up a book and the, the packaging of it looks good and you have this expectation that it's going to be good, then that can actually affect the reading experience in that you would rate it higher. Even if you didn't like love it, you'd still enjoy it more than the exact same words inside a packaging that didn't look as professional, where you went into it going, oh, this doesn't feel right, then your reading experience is going to be uh, affected by that. So it's not like by having a great cover and great blurbs and, and great all these things that you can turn a mediocre book into a wonderful book. But by going the other way around, you could have a wonderful book that is less appreciated than it could be because it's been tainted, I guess. Uh, the bias has shifted due to the impressions that the readers have going into it by a less than ideal cover, or less than ideal fonts, and all these other little things that go into making up it up what it is. Those are really good points. There is, um, there's an author that I know, I've met a few times, um, and he is really good with covers, um, or his cover designer is really good with covers, in terms of designing a certain type of cover that will appeal to a certain type of reader, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a genre-ish kind of thing, where every time I see one of his covers, I want to buy the book. And I try really hard to like these books. So it's, it's exactly what you're saying with a slightly different spin on it. Because I like the cover so much and the packaging and the blurbs that I, I am willing to read further into one of these books before I just, before I say, eh, this is not for me, um, than I would normally. Where if, if the cover was average and the blurb was average, what you described as the packaging was averaging, I, at, was average. I might read a few pages and say this is for not me. Even pick, might not even pick it up at all. Yeah, but but there are also times when that happens, and not with this particular author, because there's just something about his style that doesn't appeal to me. Um, but there have been other times when the cover is, eh, and the blurb. There's enough information in there for me to think, oh, that might be like this, and I would enjoy it if it were like that, and I'll start reading. And I don't have to get very far in, in that case, to know, yes, this is, this is, I'm going to enjoy this book. Mm -hmm. And so I'm willing, and, that, and that's just from a couple of keywords into the blurb, in the blurb. So that's like a quick transition into the importance of the blurb as well. And Taylor, you mentioned the idea of white space on the page and how white space on the page was something that, depending on where it was, w could be really offensive to you. But in blurbs, to my sensibilities, <laughs> to your sensibilities, yes. yes. <laughs> but in blurbs, there, are, I, I think we've all seen blurbs where you're just scanning through Amazon looking for something to read, and you go, "Oh, this cover looks good," and you click on it, and you start reading this wall of text, and you go, "Oh my gosh, I, I 
I don't, I, you read the whole thing and you go, I have no idea what this book's about. And you just move on to the next one. As opposed to something that's a little bit more tightly written where there's a lot of white space around it and the words that need to stand out really stand out and you see them and you say, yeah, this is the kind of thing I might really want to read. And that's also something that people, that, that is very learnable. There's, there are some really smart people who have studied this and written books a couple of Brian's that come to mind. One is Brian Cohen has written a great book on writing blurbs called How to Write a Sizzling Synopsis. And another uh, gentleman, Brian Meeks, who's a data scientist, he, he takes a really geeky look at um, writing blurbs. And his, his book is called um, Mastering Amazon Descriptions. Both of those are good. Um, it, it is a learnable skill, but it's really important and one of the things that Brian gets into in his book is just the, well, Brian Meeks, more so than Brian Cohen, but the idea that blurbs should be experimented with if, if you're an indie author. If, if you're traditionally published, then you're, you know, whatever the publisher uses is what they've used. But I think, though, we have to clarify um, what we mean by blurbs, because generally in the industry, um, blurbs are quotes that are given by other authors. But I think what you're describing here are the the summaries or the what the book is about that usually would show up on the cover flap or sometimes on the back of the book that basically summarizes the story in a way that's supposed to draw the readers in and make them want to give it a chance correct correct okay and it's so it's that block of text to the right of the cover at amazon um, and, and the importance of that is because that's what you're reading about the book, and that helps you to decide whether, A, to buy it, or B, to download the sample to see if you're going to like it. And, yes, there are lots of terms for, for that kind of thing. I, um, I think in the, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the traditional publishing industry, they call that cover copy. Like, it's actual copy uh, as, you know... Mm-hmm. I can't, <laughs> my brain's not working it. Yeah, and, but, and that yeah, may okay. very well be the case. In most indies, it's it's a different thing because the cover, the, the cover is that image on the front. That's what indie authors think of as the cover, that little... Okay. Um, the picture. Uh, snap, yeah, the, 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 oh, I'm drawing a blank on the, the thumbnail size that, that, right. that you see, um, as opposed to the back cover material, which would be, in a lot of cases, just the blurb or a, maybe a modified version of the blurb. And there's lots of sales information that you can put into what I'm calling a blurb, and what Taylor is calling cover copy or mm-hmm. something. Um, but it's essentially an effort in copywriting. It's, your, it's a sales piece. You know, why should I read your book? Why should any reader um, read your book? And it's an art form to do that. And there are people who will do it. Um, for a fee. So you can hire people to do it. You can buy books to learn how to do it. Or you can just kind of experiment your way into good blurbs. And you can, you can change your blurb as often as you want. Again, I'm using the term blurb as the, the piece of content next to uh, the book at KDP or another online bookstore. It's just, they're super easy to change. They're, it's easy to highlight certain blocks of text. And it's, if you're selling enough to where there's a meaningful difference. If, if you're selling four or five books a week and you change the blurb and you're selling 10 books a week, then you know that that blurb is better. And then you can try another blurb and just kind of work your way through until you find something that works. Um, there are lots of things that do work. One of the things that works really well is asking questions, 
one of the things that does not work well at all that most people do initially is to give a summary of the plot because that's what the book is for. And right. that's not going to convince someone to read the book. I am, I, I mentioned this blurb that I'd read earlier, that a book that had a, a so-so cover, but I read the word houseboat in the, in the blurb. And I grew up on the Travis McGee mysteries and Travis McGee lived on a houseboat. So any book where the main character lives on a houseboat, I'm going to at least start reading it. (laughs) So when I see that, that's code for anybody that likes Travis McGee. So if that's the kind of thing that you have to know, that if there's an audience out there for that kind of for that kind of book or there's a history for that kind of book and your character lives on a houseboat, you better say he lives on a houseboat and the second or third uh, sentence of the blurb because you don't want to waste that opportunity. So covers and blurbs or what Taylor, I think, really accurately described as packaging are incredibly important. And as, as she said, it won't sell, it won't help to sell a book that's not very good but it will really help to sell uh, a book that's maybe a little above average if it's if it's good enough and then you can get people into your story and the story is good maybe it's it's not the crafting of the story is not perfect and the words are not perfect but if your story is good and the cover and blurb gets them in um and the readers like the characters then you can sell the second book and the third book and the fourth book yeah we should also talk about the other kind of blurbs which okay. are other quotes that yes. usually show up on the back of mm-hmm. a book. Um, so, or they show up in that material that I was talking about yes. next to that. That's another place. And in your books, um, in, the, in the, what I call the blurbs on almost all of your books, there's a Lee Child quote right at the top as, as a way of offering social proof for exactly. this author. So there's this big sort of debate uh, in the industry is, do, do do you need author author blurbs or author quotes or whatever? And um, do they do these author quotes actually sell copies? And the it's it's a thing of social proof that that's what these quotes these I I can't use the word blurb now because it's going <laughs> to totally confuse everybody. <laughs> but but they in the other side of the industry, when they talk about blurbs, they're talking about author quotes or, or pieces pulled out of from reviewers or whatever. But um, that's what it is, is it's social proof. It's basically trying to tell the reader, hey, all these big names or people who matter, they thought this book was awesome and you should too. So do they actually sell copies? Uh, sometimes. I mean, there were there are people who've picked up my work because of Vince Flynn quotes or Lee Child quotes or what have you. But for the most part, there are so many authors, so many authors, most of which readers have never heard of because we have our, our stable, our repertoire. And every once in a while we, we branch out from there. But unless it's somebody that we read regularly, you just, you're not going to remember the names. And so the names don't even really matter. It's the fact that they've got New York Times bestseller after the name that matters. Unless it's a name that you personally recognize, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's really about establishing social proof. So although occasionally having an author quote on there, or give an author recommending a book 
will sell copies. Like I know that if I tell my readers, hey, this was a really good book, they'll trust my judgment and will probably pick it up. So if somebody knows me and knows my taste and having my name on that book might sway some of those readers to read it. But for the most part, no. The absence of those, though, however, because they, the, these author posts are so dominant in the industry, um, the absence of them speaks louder than the, the actual material that's on the page. So does having quotes from authors that nobody's ever heard of matter more, uh, to help you more than just having no quotes? And I would say, yeah, because most people haven't heard of half the authors, three quarters of the authors that are, have quoted mine either. Like, it's just nobody knows who they are. So having a quote on there from an author um, with that author's book after the name um, is a better form of social proof than not having it. Will it sell a book? Probably not. But will it make the book seem more viable than if it's not there? Yes. And it's bizarre. And I, it just, it's psycho, psychological, it's psychology. There's, there's no other way around it. Um, but getting author quotes, it can be a real pain in the butt. It can be hard to get them if you don't already have them. Um, personally, I feel like uh, reviewer uh, quotes are even better. Like, you know, oh, from the Dallas Morning News or from, you know, book page or whatever. It, but those are even harder to get than our author quotes. So when I was doing the vessel, this this hardcover version of it, I had plenty to draw from in in prior uh, praise or whatever to put on the back cover. But not everybody does. I don't have solutions for how to get those quotes um, if you don't have any. But if you have any friends who are authors who'd be willing to do you a solid, then that would be your place to start. Um, in the traditional publishing industry, it's usually the publisher that solicits them because editors have connections with, you know, hey, can you ask your author if they'll read this book or whatever. But after you've been in the industry for a while and you've met a lot of people and you've made connections, then you're in a much better position to just go to them directly, which I had to do with the liar's books. But um, it's just, it's one of those things of, no, they don't really help, but not having them is screams really loud. So that's just my opinion on it, though. I'm sure that others would. So let's uh, let's let's rank the idea of of those quotes. And so, the the top tier of of the of those quotes would be an author that everyone has heard of, yes. um, Lee Child, for example, Steve, Stephen King. Yeah. So a, a second, uh, yeah. the second tier would be an author that some people have heard of, but but maybe an author who 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 can say New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. So there's some social proof there. Third tier might be just other authors in the genre. Uh, all of those would be difficult to get. One thing that's really easy to get, and it serves the same purpose at a much lower level, as, and we'll just call it the fourth tier, and that's just grabbing some Amazon reviews that are very favorable about your book and putting them in your blurb, or in what I call the blurb. Because, and there's one more. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll fill that in in a minute. But that accomplishes the same thing of having something there. So there's, there's some sort of as Taylor said, psychological thing where you're seeing someone else really like this book. And at the top of the list is Lee Child, and at the bottom of the list is 
Steve C. in Florida, Amazon reviewer, really liked this book. But it still fills the same gap, and it tells the reader someone liked this book. A yes. real person liked this book. One other route you can go, but not everybody can pull this off effectively. Um, but those who, and not every book can do it. You, you, it doesn't work for every story, but it's when you go self-deprecation. This is the best book since Joy of Cooking, My Mother. This <laughs> is, you know, and so you're basically making fun of yourself, but in in a in a very <laughs> very obvious way that mm-hmm. it's and but but having that kind of humor is winnable on its own. Like I would pick up a book that had that kind of self-deprecation on it if it was done well, just because, hey, this this person is funny, maybe they're that kind of um, creative thinking maybe is on the inside of the book too, right? I, I enjoyed this. Maybe I'll enjoy other things that they've created. Um, but again, that that's like, you know, salt. You got to go for Maybe it's like ghost pepper chili. You got to go really, really, really light with it. Not everybody can pull it off. Um, but if, if you can, then that's also an option. All right. So we have run out of time for this episode. We actually ran out of time about 15 minutes ago. But that was a, a, an interesting discussion. And I, for one, am excited to hear that the vessel is coming out in print. So good on you, Taylor, for making that happen. Oh, yay. Yay me. Yay. <laughs> Sorry. We are, we are, with all that, with, now that Taylor has, has accomplished that, and we've finished this 45-minute show, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break until after the first of the year. So we will not be back in your ear until Tuesday, January 5th. Did I have that right? Is that the right date? First Tuesday of January. Yeah, I think that's Tuesday, January 5th. So we hope you guys have a fantastic holiday season and um, get to spend time with with the family that's around and and you stay healthy and just remember what the holiday is all about and uh, just love your family and read some good books. Happy New Year, guys. See you on the other side.